I'm David Feldman, and this is The Mop Up. I stopped eating at Chick-fil-A years ago when I discovered its CEO, Dan Cathy, was donating millions to anti-LGBTQ groups, helping them fight same-sex marriage. Plus, I always felt it was somewhat hypocritical for a fast food restaurant that sells chicken to pass judgment on how people make love, considering the female chicken's cloaca. Now, take a look at this. As you can see, a chicken has a cloaca, which means she shares her reproductive organs with her digestive system. To put it delicately, the eggs that come from a chicken have been fertilized via sodomy in a manner that runs counter to good Christian homophobic values. Four bigots who are against same-sex marriage and same-sex adoptions. For the bigots at Chick-fil-A who call themselves Christians to oppose same-sex marriage and same-sex adoptions, how dare they, how dare they have no problem literally eating the progeny of sodomy? I don't mean to be rude, but eggs and chicken are the progeny of sodomy. Look at the map of a chicken's body. Look at the cloaca. That is both the orifice for fertilization and the digestive system. And I, for one, will not sit idly by while intolerant bigots are tricked into literally eating Satan's spawn. I will not have it. Chicken is the devil's handiwork, and it should be banned. It should be banned. Good Christians should not be eating chicken. Learn about the cloaca. Where is Florida on this? Where is Governor DeSantis on this? Why is he allowing chickens in Florida to reproduce with their cloacas? Why do they allow Chick-fil-A to sell these disgusting animals, the progeny of sodomy in Florida? That is why I don't eat at Chick-fil-A. Nobody should because of the cloaca. Plus, the CEO of Chick-fil-A is named Dan Cathy. Dan Cathy. And that doesn't seem like the proper name for a right-wing homophobe, does it? Dan Cathy. Dan Cathy is the name given to weekend warriors on Fire Island. Dan Cathy is what you call the married guy with five kids visiting Provincetown on the down low. Hey, look, it's another Dan Cathy. Better not tell his wife about Teddy. Well, Chick-fil-A is facing a boycott from me, and it's also facing a potential boycott from the far right. For example, Charlie Kirk, the college dropout, Koch Brothers-funded bully who runs Turning Points USA, he is now offended that Chick-fil-A has hired a diversity officer. And when he checked out the website... Charlie Kirk discovered that Chick-fil-A insists the company believes, quote, we are better together. The website over Chick-fil-A goes on to say that better together means, quote, embedding diversity, equity, and inclusion in everything we do. D-E-I, Chick-fil-A says it believes in diversity, equity, and inclusion by, quote, ensuring equal access, valuing differences, and creating a culture of belonging, unquote. And now the right wing is ready to boycott Chick-fil-A. The left hates Chick-fil-A. The right hates Chick-fil-A. You know, for a company that says it hates the LGBTQ community, 
it sure seems like Chick-fil-A goes out of its way to get it from both ends. A trial date was set on Tuesday for Peter Navarro, Donald Trump's former White House economic advisor, who was brought up on charges of contempt of Congress after he refused to testify before the January 6th committee. Navarro is also being charged with failure to produce documents subpoenaed by that committee, which disbanded earlier this year, back in January. Peter Navarro was ordered to testify about the role he played in spreading the lies that Donald Trump won in 2020. He refused to testify before the January 6th committee, so his trial was set on Tuesday for September 5th of this year. He goes before the same judge who presided in the trial of Oath Keepers founder Stuart Rhodes, who was sentenced last week to 18 years for seditious conspiracy. Former Trump advisor Steve Bannon was found guilty of contempt of Congress last year after he refused to testify before the same January 6th committee. He is now looking at four months in jail, but he still walks free waiting to appeal the verdict. Moscow was hit by at least eight aerial kamikaze drones on Tuesday, hitting apartment buildings, shattering windows with nobody seriously injured. The attacks are said to be a reprisal for Russia targeting Ukraine's capital city of Kiev. The Biden administration said it didn't support the idea of Ukraine attacking Russia, but the Biden State Department on Tuesday intimated that the attacks on Moscow Moscow were well justified, considering that in May alone, Kiev has been struck 17 times by Russian missile attacks. Yesterday in Kiev, a Russian missile killed one woman and injured 11. The woman who accused Joe Biden of sexually assaulting her announced on Tuesday in Moscow that she is defecting to Russia. Tara Reid, a former staffer for then-Senator Joe Biden, came forward in 2020, claiming that Joe Biden pushed her against a wall in 1993 and assaulted her. Then-candidate Biden denied the charges. Tara Reid announced on Tuesday during an interview with Russian news agency Sputnik that she would like to gain Russian citizenship. The interview was conducted while she sat next to Maria Butina, a member of the Russian parliament. She's a new member of the Russian parliament. Before getting elected to the Russian parliament, Maria Butina was convicted and sentenced to 18 months in an American prison for infiltrating the National Rifle Association as a Russian spy in order to gain influence over Republican politicians. She was freed from jail in 2019 and then sent back to Russia. Tara Reid said, with the 2024 presidential election starting up, she no longer feels safe in America and is moving to Moscow for fear she might end up dead if she stays in America. The House Rules Committee on Tuesday, by a vote of seven to six, sent the new debt ceiling bill to Congress, where it is expected to be debated, voted on, and passed by the end of Wednesday evening. Then it moves to the Senate, where it is expected to pass. Mitch McConnell is on board. He's the Republican minority leader. So this bill should be signed by President Biden before June 5th when the American government is expected to run out of money. It's called the Fiscal Responsibility Act, and it's only 99 pages. So all the lawmakers who can read have had a chance to pretend they have read it. In the new bill, America's debt limit, currently standing at $31.4 trillion, is raised until January of 2025. There's no cap. There's no ceiling. It can go as high as it needs to go, kicking the proverbial can down the road for the next Congress in 2025 and whoever is president then to place a future cap, if necessary, on the national debt. 
Now, to please Republicans, this bill increases military spending and now includes some work requirements for food stamps. If you're able-bodied and you're not homeless or a veteran, there's a limit to how much you can collect in food stamps and you have to find work. Republicans also got a concession from Biden to streamline the permitting of energy projects like gas pipelines. Joe Manchin sealed that one, and there's a new pipeline leaving West Virginia starting later in the year because of this. But for Democrats, this is what the Democrats seem to have gotten. It leaves in place Joe Biden's executive order for giving $20,000 in federal student loans. Let me repeat, because this is important to my listeners. This new debt ceiling bill leaves in place Joe Biden's executive order for giving $20,000 in federal student loans. So if you have federal student loans and you make, I think it's less than $135,000 a year, you can get $20,000 of those loans forgiven. It doesn't touch Medicare, doesn't touch Social Security or Medicaid. Republican Speaker Kevin McCarthy is putting this bipartisan bill before the House on Wednesday, which means members of the far-right Freedom Caucus are free to complain all they want, and they don't have to vote for it because it's bipartisan. There are enough Democrats who will vote for it. This isn't going to be 15 rounds like getting him elected Speaker because it's not along party lines. He's not running against Hakeem Jeffries. Hakeem Jeffries, the Democratic leader in the House, supports this. So we're not going to see 15, 15 rounds. We're going to hear an angry debate from Republicans, the, the members of the Freedom Caucus, but everyone I've spoken with tells me this is it's going to be a bumpy road until they vote. There'll be procedural tricks played to slow it down. But this thing is getting passed. Here is Republican Congressman Glenn Grothman from Sheboygan, Wisconsin. He's a Republican. He's a despicable human being, always has been. He's against the, the new bill because it didn't get rid of public housing. He is opposed to all public housing because he's a racist and he wants work, week, work requirements. The Minnesota, the Wisconsin congressman wants work requirements in order to live in public housing because he claims public housing destroys the family. You know, as opposed to living out on the streets, which brings families together, but just for the warmth, because those streets get awfully cold in Sheboygan, Wisconsin, during the winter. Here is the horrible, despicable, repulsive and putrid Republican congressman from Wisconsin, Glenn Grothman. But they left low-income housing untouched. I think as far as discouraging work and discouraging marriage, I think low-income housing is even a, a, a more dangerous program than, uh, than the food stamps. So I'm including low-income housing in the mix of having work requirements. The, the amendment is drafted just includes Section 8 housing, which is an error on my part because there are other low-income housings as well. But that's what we have before us. I would appreciate it if you'd let that to the floor because I don't think our team fought on the low-income housing front at all. So that is what Republicans really believe. He's a far-right extremist, but he's speaking what even Kevin McCarthy believes, that there sh should not only be work requirements to live in public low-income housing, but there shouldn't be low-income housing. It should just be a Hobbesian nightmare for low-income Americans. He is a racist. He is a racist. And if this guy sounds familiar, I played a clip of him last week. Uh, I think it was Thursday. Now, last Thursday, while they were debating the debt ceiling, the very racist Congressman Grothman from Sheboygan, Wisconsin, they were debating the, the debt ceiling, but he decided to bring something else up besides the debt ceiling. He decided 
to complain about how hard it is these days for white guys who aren't gay. A study was done a little while ago on the federal judiciary. I wish we had these studies for all other appointments by the Biden administration. And apparently his first two years, President Biden had appointed 97 federal judges. Of the 97 federal judges, I was expecting maybe 25 or 30 were white guys, because I know President Biden wasn't heavy on appointing more white guys. Five of the 97 judges were white guys. Of those, two were gay. So... Um, almost impossible for a white guy who's not gay, apparently, to get appointed here. That is the racist, homophobic Republican Congressman Glenn Grothman from Sheboygan, Wisconsin. And if you see the C-SPAN, Chiron, you can ascertain that they are debating the federal spending and debt limit. But the racist, homophobic Republican Congressman Glenn Grothman from Sheboygan, Wisconsin, decided, well, let's talk about how tough it is for straight white guys. Very germane to the conversation, you racist. You know, it's hard to believe, but much of the antipathy towards social spending in America, uh, much of the opposition to social spending is because racists like Glenn Grothman think the social spending goes only towards black people. When in fact, per capita, and you can Google this, per capita, white people, white people are more likely to go on food stamps or welfare or public housing. They're going to need public housing and Medicaid. White people per capita are, are the bigger recipients of all the social programs, all the uh, things that keep people alive. But that doesn't matter. The truth, as we've learned with Republicans, it doesn't matter. Republicans don't want to make their corporate donators, donors, pay taxes. That's why they're sent to Washington, D.C. So they want to cut social services. And they're sadistic. They, they go to satisfy the, the richest 1% and their bloodlust. They want to punish poor people. They get off on that because they're sexually dysfunctional. And people like Glenn Grothman, who's a lawyer, uh, the best way to get low information voters on board cutting taxes and kicking people off Medicaid, food stamps, kicking them out of public housing or work requirements the, the easiest way to do that with low information voters is convincing them that black people are the largest recipients of government handouts. It's a lie. It's, it's simply not true. But these low information voters want to believe it. They vote their hatred. They vote their racism. And of course, they end up hurting themselves, because the ones who believe this about black people are the ones who need public housing, Medicaid, food stamps. It's a, a trick the devil plays on low information voters. Glenn Grothman is a lawyer. He's an idiot, but he knows what he's doing. He's a, a racist idiot. He isn't just against uh, public housing. He's against the holiday that celebrates Martin Luther King. He's against Kwanzaa. This is who these people are. He, Glenn Grothman, says what you kind of use dog whistles to hide behind, but he's out in front. This is who the Republicans really are. It's who Kevin McCarthy is. Speaker McCarthy has alienated the far-right Freedom Caucus, who have been coiled like a snake in the grass, waiting for a moment like this to pounce, to lunge, to call a vote on replacing him. Remember, all it takes is one member of the Republican caucus to demand a vote on who should be speaker. That's the concession McCarthy made in order to win the speakership. He has a lot of enemies 
a lot of enemies in the Republican Party in the House. Here is Dan Bishop. He's a Republican from North Carolina. They're not complaining about the debt ceiling bill, really. They're complaining about McCarthy. This guy hasn't even read what's in the bill. They just want to get McCarthy. Here is North Carolina Republican Dan Bishop. Who do you think would, would have done a better job negotiating this than Speaker McCarthy? Who should you think should be in the Speaker's chair? Um, yep. well, there are 434 mem- other members of Congress. Nobody could have done a worse job. Nobody could have done a worse job out of the entire Congress, including the Democrats and Hakeem Jeffries. North Carolina Republican Dan Bishop says nobody could do a worse job in the House than the Speaker, the Republican Speaker, Kevin McCarthy. Congressman Lauren Boebert took time off from telling the police that her son is fine and that her soon-to-be ex-husband wasn't beating him. She took time out of her busy schedule. I don't know if you heard the 911 call of the, the son saying, my dad's beating me up. And then Lauren Boebert calls 911 back and says, yeah, there's, she's not really beating him up. Uh, in her defense, the police did come out after the call. And they, according to what I've read, in her defense, there were no physical marks on the son. And that should be reported. A lot of people on the left have been making fun of the 911 call and talking about how Jason Bobert, the father, beat the kid up. And then Lauren Bobert called 911 back and said, don't come out. The police did come out. They examined the kid and there were no physical marks. That's the official report. I don't know if that's true, but I think... You should report that, even though we do not approve of the Boebert family. Well, here is Congressman Lauren Boebert uh, speaking out against Kevin McCarthy's debt ceiling compromise with Joe Biden. Tomorrow's bill is a bunch of fake news and fake talking points that will do nothing to rein in out of control federal spending if every Republican voted the way that they campaigned, they would vote against tomorrow's bad deal because this is the very thing that we all campaigned to put an end to. Chip Roy, Republican from Texas, who called the bill a turd sandwich over the weekend. By the way, he calls everything a turd sandwich. I I, I found out that he had a threesome with Marjorie Taylor Greene and Lauren Boebert, and he called that a turd sandwich. Well, actually, that is a turd (laughs) sandwich. sandwich. Uh, But he was a little more eloquent on Tuesday. Here he is pretty much threatening Kevin McCarthy's speakership. That is why this group will oppose it. We will continue to fight it today, tomorrow. And no matter what happens, there's going to be a reckoning about what just occurred unless we stop this bill by tomorrow. A reckoning. Very menacing. But you know what? Kevin McCarthy is a survivor and, you know, he he's had a deal with the Freedom Caucus, these far right Republicans before. He knows he knows what they're like. He knows they want to inflict pain on ordinary Americans. Kevin McCarthy understands that people like Lauren Boebert and Chip Roy, this isn't about balancing the budget. It's satisfying the bloodlust of their constituents. And I think Kevin McCarthy is a lot smarter than he lets on. I think he slipped an Easter egg into this debt ceiling bill. Here he is on Tuesday talking to reporters. Pay attention. Pay close attention to what he says. Here he is telling reporters why this debt ceiling bill is a good deal for Republicans because of what he has slipped into it. For things we bought that we can return, like COVID money, money to China and others, we're bringing that back. We might have a child that has no job, no dependents, but sitting on a couch. We're going to encourage that person to get a job and have to go to work, which gives them worth and value. Okay, I'm going to play the key sentence here. 
We might have a child that has no job, no dependents, but sitting on a couch. We're going to encourage that person to get a job. Now, I know you think, many of my listeners right now think it's not an Easter egg. You say, oh, that's a Freudian slip. But here is Kevin McCarthy on Fox News Tuesday night saying the same exact thing. But we also did something different. In this family, we may have a child that uh, able-bodied, not married, no kids, but he's sitting on the couch collecting welfare. We're going to put work requirements on that individual. So he's going to have work requirements. He's going to get a job and it's going to make the life easier. Now, that is not artificial intelligence. I promise you. That is Kevin McCarthy repeating what he said during his press conference. Some of you think it's a Freudian slip. Listen to it again. In this family, we may have a child that uh, able-bodied, not married, no kids, but he's sitting on the couch collecting welfare. We're going to put work requirements on that individual. Able-bodied children who are not married, sitting on the couch, collecting welfare, not working. He said that. And that's how I think he's going to keep his speakership. That's how I think he gets the Freedom Caucus on board and stays in power by putting children to work. I think he slipped it in to this budget ceiling bill. He said it during his press conference that able-bodied children sitting on their couch should have to work for their welfare. Then he went on Fox and said it again. I don't think it's a slip. I think it's an Easter egg. He wants able-bodied children to get off the couch and go get a job. And that's what's happening all over America in red states, like in Arkansas or Kentucky, where children no longer need permission from their parents to work incredibly dangerous jobs. Here's a news report from last week in Kentucky. Well, that was supposed to be a news report from Kentucky. McDonald's franchise is being accused of hiring 10-year-olds. The Department of Labor says this was happening in Kentucky. The kids were not paid, yet sometimes worked as late as 2 a.m. The Labor Department says they made food, cleaned the store, worked the drive-thru, even managed the register. Oh, my goodness. So one of them even worked the deep fryer. You do have to be at least 16 to do that. Yep, it's already happening. Kids working the deep fryer at McDonald's. Sure, it's illegal now in Kentucky for, for kids, what, 10-year-old kids to work the deep fryer? It's illegal now in Kentucky. But wait till we see what Kevin McCarthy slipped into this debt ceiling bill. I think Republicans in the Freedom Caucus will be pleasantly surprised to discover that pretty soon minors can now work as minors. I'm David Feldman, reminding you to stay strong and protect the weak. You're listening to The David Feldman Show, you happy, self-actualized hump. Reverend Barry W. Lynn joins us. For nearly a quarter of a century, he ran Americans United for separation of church and state. He is a member of the Supreme Court Bar. He is a lawyer as well as an ordained minister in the United Church of Christ. His latest book is Paid to Piss People Off. It's a trilogy. And tonight we're going to talk about the book entitled Protest, which is part of the trilogy. It's published by Blue Cedar Press. It has the Feldman guarantee. Go by paid to piss people off. Welcome, Reverend. Thank you. Uh, the first one is peace, although a lot of it is about protest. And then the second is porn. That's porn, which you always gravitate to. And then prayer, which rarely crosses your mind. Right. But we're going to talk about pro protesting and yes. peace. And, peace. Protesting right, but, for peace. Right. And there's a picture. Your daughter's on the cover of the, the peace book. 
Yes, when she was three years old, she went to an anti-war rally. I actually took her on the stage with me. I was very uncomfortable with that afterwards. And I never did it again because I didn't know that she would turn out to be the delightfully progressive young woman that she is today. So one of the, thing, one of the things baby boomers mm -hmm. like to crow about is we stopped the war in Vietnam. We took to the streets in the 60s and the yippies and the hippies and Tom Hayden and Jane Fonda, we stopped the war in Vietnam. Did the peace movement stop the war? Because when, when did we finally pull out? 74? Yeah, we... 73, we 73. 73 is when there were the Paris Peace Accords, which of course were the same agreements that Kissinger had negotiated about eight years earlier, but he was dissatisfied at that point. I think the anti-war movement was essential to ending the war. Was but it? As, yes, but it didn't do a terribly good job at it. The first people that we that were killed in Vietnam, according to William Manchester, the historian, there were two guys who were changing the film reels in a tent one night, and two of them were shot by snipers. So this was before anybody thought there even was a war in Vietnam. We thought that there were advisors, but of course they were more than doing advice. They were part of the first wave of military operators of the United States into Vietnam. I'm trying to do the math here. I know that my father, who served in World War II, finally came around to wanting to end the war in Vietnam after Dr. King spoke at it. Once Dr. King said this war is immoral, my father was taking me to moratoriums. What is that, 65, 66? When did King speak out against the war? I, I think his first... Well, intimations of it were before, but I think it was 1967 when he did that big program at Riverside Church uh, in New York City. And then the next day spoke at the United Nations. Where, and were you there? Where, yeah, I was there at the United Nations during uh, what was an incredible speech. And Dr. King um, was one of the reasons. Well, I, I, I want to talk to you a little bit about how I got involved in this in the first place. And Dr. King is very much a piece of it. But my family used to take me to Ocean City, New Jersey, one for one week. My father only had one week uh, in August and one in July off and then sometime around the holidays. From the December. candy factory. Well, no, by that time he worked, he was selling uh, stone and slag, two byproducts of making steel. But um, he had been, you know, he had swept the floors in the Just Born Candy Company and he played a piano in silent movie houses during the Depression as well. But um, so he didn't get much time off. But without fail, we went to a place called the Hotel Lincoln, which was in Ocean City, New Jersey. It was kind of, uh, it turns out a lot of people do know something about Ocean City. It wasn't as built up as Atlantic City, and it wasn't as kind of wild party-ish as Wildwood, New Jersey, but it was a, a good family place. And uh, at the Hotel Lincoln, where we stayed every single year, and we ate dinner every single night, in 1962, there was an activities night there, and they played a movie, and the movie was called China Gate, it was made in 1957. It had Angie Dickinson, Gene Barry, and um, Nat King Cole, the singer. And it was about the French occupation of Vietnam. And it was, it was a little too anti-French. So for many years, the movie couldn't even be shown in France. This was the first time I had ever heard of a war. Uh, the Viet Minh at the t at the time, and I was absolutely fascinated by it. And then it was exactly one year later, in 1963, we're in the same room, we're looking at a giant television showing the debate in the Senate over the Gulf of Tonkin resolution. This, for people who may have, have forgotten, this was a completely made up uh, commentary by the 
Johnson administration, where he claimed that a, a naval vessel of the United States had been uh, shot, shelled two, by I two, Maddox, two North, the Maddox, yeah, and some another one, Maddox, and uh, that it had been shelled right. by two uh, North Vietnamese boats, patrol boats. Even Robert McNamara, who, of course, was in many ways an architect of the Vietnam War, in the last book he wrote, he conceded pretty much that the thing never happened. There had never been an attack on naval vessels. But what the administration wanted was a, a kind of blank checks that anything could be done, any monies could be spent to stop communist aggression in Vietnam. And I remember talking to my father at the end of that, and I said, you know, uh, this is the same war they it was in that movie a year ago. And he said, he was wrong occasionally. He said, Barry, don't worry about it. It'll be over very soon. Well, it, it, of course, it wasn't. That was 1964. It was 1964. Yeah, the Gulf. Uh, yeah I, I think I said 63, but. No, no, you didn't say anything. I, okay. I, I thought it was. Yeah, I, my, my um, the dates are are not as clear as the experience. But. And so the so the protest movement, the Gulf of Tonkin '64 by '68, there were half a million boys, basically boys, a few girls, but mostly boys in Vietnam, and the protest movement was in full bloom by then, by '68, and the yeah. Paris peace talks were taking place. Is it fair to say that had Kissinger not jeopardized the, the Paris peace talks in 68, which we could discuss another time, right. and, and Hubert Humphrey were president, that the protest movement would have succeeded in bringing an end to the war with a President Humphrey? You know, I honestly don't know the answer to that. I don't think anybody does. We just speculate about these things and speculating about what's going to happen to the debt ceiling, you know, is uh, more useful in speculating about what would have happened if Hubert Humphrey had become president of the United States. What if Jack Kennedy hadn't been uh, uh, hadn't been assassinated? Uh, David Halberstam, the historian, also has a lot of commentary about where he wrote in the best and the brightest his effort to talk about the Kennedy staff, uh, that they were working on him and that Kennedy was in fact about ready to say enough of Vietnam. Right. But some historians disagree with that. Some agree with it. It's just impossible to know. But I do know that this, these, this protest movement was so important to me. Um, it's, it's a, um, to me, I started in high school. The only thing I did that was a kind of a clear example of protest against Vietnam, aside from being the only student in my you know, civics class that was against the war, because I had started to read the wonderful writings of Bob Shear, who created uh, Ramparts magazine. And, um, and then the, the band, the Liberty High School band in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, was supposed to march in a victory in Vietnam parade. So I went up to the band director and I said, I'm not going. I don't even know that we should be victorious in Vietnam. I think it's just a civil conflict. And he, to his perhaps credit, or maybe just because he was, you know, as cowardly as I thought he was, uh, it was like, OK, you don't have to go. You don't have to go. So I didn't go. And there was one fewer clarinet player at the victory. You know, I remember playing. I, I played the trumpet in the elementary school marching band. And I can remember on July 4th or Memorial Day marching with a black armband that said 50,000 on it. Yep. Of course. Of course. And, uh, and not everybody was, wore it. No, of course not. And I mean, I think I probably had I decided to wear it instead of just refusing to go to it. Uh, there wouldn't have been a lot of people with black armbands there. Bethlehem was a very working class town. Uh, the Bethlehem Steel employed a huge number of people. It had not yet become a kind of megalopolis. 
on the uh, between Philadelphia and New York. So I go to college and I do the things that people do in college. You, you go to protests, you try to organize protests in your local community, Carlisle, Pennsylvania, which is at the time. Uh, uh, Named after the Carlisle of, group, I believe. David uh, yes, it was not actually, but it was an I instead of a Y, but I'm sure oh. they had something to do with. And the Army War College was there, hmm. you know, where they teach you how to torture people. Right. And that was a big source of, of other um, uh, other so protests. When you say well. the Army War College, when you, you talk about the Panamanian leaders of the Latin American generals, they would go there to learn? Well, they would go there or also to a place in Washington, D.C., another place where this kind of training went on. But the one that was really training in secret was the Army War College in Carlisle, Pennsylvania. And I, I remember, you remember 1970 when there were murders at Jackson State and at Kent State, there were massive uh, kind of neo-revolutionary movements on college campuses all over the United States. And I remember we had one in Carlisle and uh, we uh, we went to the Army War College and Paul Krasner, who I became quite friendly with, the great humorist and satirist and editor of the, uh, the Realist magazine, uh, he came and gave a wonderful speech and uh, was a great a great protest. Paul Krasner is unknown, unfortunately, to a lot of people because, as he used to tell me, he didn't get arrested in 1968 in Chicago, along with Abby right. Hoffman well, and, Paul, and a couple of other people. I, I became friendly with Paul in San Francisco. He's been on this show a couple of times. And one of the things I regret the most is insisting in a conversation on the show with him that the protest movement didn't really end the Vietnam War. Uh, I, I felt I was a little disrespectful, and he's since passed on. Yeah, uh, but let me but, let but me he, be let me be disrespectful but, to you. Yeah, sure, of course. <laughs> the the pro protesting it feels good. It's like recycling. Recycling feels good, but the fact is that the richest one percent produce ninety nine percent of the carbon emissions and the greenhouse gases and recycling. It's just a, a nice thing to do. It makes you feel good. The largest protests in the history of protesting were in 2003 in the run up to the war in Iraq, globally, in New York City, around right. the world. Doesn't matter if, if we're going to war, we're going to war. Do you do you think taking to the streets works? You do. Oh, absolutely. I absolutely. Are, is there a, is that. there an alternative to taking to the streets? You're a lawyer. Yeah, there. Well, there are a couple of uh, alternatives. You you can, of course, sue to stop wars from starting. That has a 100 percent failure rate. And of course, in the current judicial climate, you have 150 percent failure rate. But you can't if you if you only protest, if there's nothing else that you're doing, if you don't agree that once you're finished protesting by going to the streets, you're going to do something else. And this comes to what happened when I was about to get out of college and I wanted to go to graduate school. And this was to me a huge moral dilemma. I was going to get married one week after uh, we graduated from Dickinson College together, Joanne, you know, and uh, named after Angie I, Dickinson, who was in that great movie. Who was in, who was in China Gate. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Is that why not. you picked Dickinson? Ab absolutely not. Oh, OK. No, no. Um, but here's the thing. And. We had long gotten over the ridiculous idea that you would get a, a deferment uh, if you were married. You know, that was never fair and always stupid. And then the, if you wanted to go to graduate school and become a lawyer, which I was already turned off by the law at that time, because lawyers, with the exception of the National Lawyers Guild, uh, didn't seem to care much about the war. And but you could get 
a deferment if you went to seminary. And I was incredibly torn about that because it didn't seem fair that just because I was going to go into the ministry, I could should somehow uh, be better treated than someone who was going to be a lawyer or somebody who was working in a factory. It seemed incredibly unfair. So I go to my army physical. I had one of those armbands that you just talked about, dripped in red dye to look like animal or per person's blood. And uh, I got there. I, I tried to be as aggressive as possible, you know, in a pacifistic kind of way. Uh, and I would yell at the sergeant, given the intro exam, you know, I'd say, raise my hand. I'm not going to answer this question. Why aren't you? I, I am claiming my rights under the Ninth Amendment. I didn't even know what the Ninth Amendment was, but I wanted to do that to show how irritated I was. And then when I got to my army physical, the head doctor there listens to my heart and says, you know, uh, sir, you, you have a very serious heart condition. I said, uh, and I, I didn't know that, which I didn't. And I said, what do I do about it? And he said, well, there's nothing to do about it. You simply need to watch it, which I remember my mother saying when I was crossing the interstate they built across from our house, watch, look both ways. Um, it just didn't sound right. And it was, and in fact, it was very serious. And as some of your listeners may know, uh, three weeks after I retired, I ended up in a hospital, multiple hospitals, because of the very same heart condition right. that finally caught up to me. At the time of that initial diagnosis, um, Joanne, again, had looked at medical records and she's a doctor. She, she's a doctor. A real doctor. doctor. A, a, a medical a, a, doctor. Yeah, well, I, some doctors are real, even if you don't have MDs. Right. When am I going to talk about Jill Biden? And um, so it was very serious, and I, I had a life expectancy of about forty. At but the you time. had, but you've always had people praying for you, haven't you? I think I have, yes. But we don't want to go into that conversation because we pretty much be it like a dead horse that it is. Until um, I here's what I do think. Even if you have doubts about whether the war ended sooner because of protests, and I do think there's considerable evidence that it did, but I understand how you can perhaps, uh, having apologized for, to Paul, be, and now he's dead, um, I don't expect a, an apology. I've already been through that near-death experience. <laughs> but this is what I do think will happen. It is not going to be possible ever, ever to have conscription back in the United States. You will ne there will never be a draft ever. And that, in my judgment, will make it less likely, not more likely, that we go to war when we shouldn't go to war. I fought for amnesty. Uh, somebody in the chat room I know is a, co a colleague of mine at, at um, during that whole effort. And the, the VFW and the other people in the military that would uh, debate me would frequently say, you know, if we grant an amnesty for those people who resisted the war, uh, we'll never be able to draft anybody again. And I would go, my heart said, you're damn right. You're damn right. And although Jimmy Carter didn't really amnesty everybody, it was a very complicated thing that you can read about on my book, Paid to Piss People Off, Volume 1. But um, Which has the, the Feldman the guarantee. Person, which has a Feldman guarantee. Um, by the way, if I write you under a pseudonym and say I read the book and I didn't like it, do I get my money back? Just a question. Um, I like the way you think. Here's the other thing. How about we go in on that together? That's a great idea. You can return your copy. <laughs> here's what we're going to do. But this is, and then when Jimmy Carter, one year after, well, it was two years, I guess, after he granted these pardons for certain categories of war resistors and um He's, he opposes returning draft registration. And then very, the very next year, in 1980, 
he decides he's in favor of draft registration, even though his opponent at the time, Ronald Reagan, was steadfastly against registering people for the draft. And there were it was a wonderful set of opponents. There were people like Ron Paul, not Rand Paul, although Rand Paul remind me to tell you who one good thing. Ron Paul's did. the real doctor. Rand Paul's the, and Rand is the ophthalmologist. No, he's an ophthalmologist. Yeah, that, you have to you have to go to school to be an ophthalmologist. But, like uh, the guy Assad in Syria is an ophthalmologist. I'm in yeah, El Zahari is an know, ophthalmologist. I'm not, I'm not going to him. Yeah. But, but here's the thing about it. Um, and my, my good friend who, who just died uh, two months ago, uh, Congresswoman Patricia Schroeder from Colorado. Um, I mean, Carter went to her when he changed his mind and he said, you know, you know, Pat, I, I do want to register women and I'd like you to take that on. And she had Diego brain answered almost everything she was told to do. And she said something like, you know, I got into the uh, House of Representatives in order not to be a militarist, not to include half of the world's, uh, the country's population into the military I disapprove of in the first place. But he did it. He got it. And then, as we learned, what, about a year ago when I had that fellow who was an anarchist and one of the very few people who was actually prosecuted for failing to register for this current draft, um, there were only 19 people prosecuted once Ronald Reagan changed his mind also. And with people like Ed Meese, who was consulate to the president at the time, Jim Schlesinger, I think, was secretary of the Navy. They were talking about how they were going to select the places to bring lawsuits. And Rudy Giuliani, you know, before he was, you know, a lunatic, and that was, of course... Used, used to be America's mayor, but he used to be in the Justice Department, and he would make speeches where he would talk about all the prosecutions that were going to occur of the people who were foolish enough to fail to register. Hundreds of thousands of people failed to register. There's also a five-year penalty uh, for not telling the government when you move. That you don't give me address because if they don't have a current address of course they can't find you hundreds of thousands of other people in that capacity 19 people 18 of them turned themselves in wrote letters to uh the attorney general and said uh here i am here's my name this is where i live i'm not registering for the draft one person was a laotian refugee who i don't know much about but it's, I think, most likely that he didn't even understand he had an obligation to register. So when you combine pardons from Jimmy Carter with a complete and abject failure to prosecute people for the current system, and I say current system because when I go to the post office to mail out some of those books paid to piss people off, I can still see the forms in the post office asking people register with selective service if they're not going to prosecute and a president is going to in the popular mind at least uh forget about the offenses of folks in the vietnam period who you ain't gonna ever bring conscription back conscription to me aside from chattel slavery is the worst worst institution this country has ever created and i don't ever want to see it come back and there's no way to make it fair people even during the carter years they talked about making it fairer if you have one exemption let's talk about a medical exemption you've one of them you've just opened the floodgates for misuse and it's not just with donald trump's bone spurs a very good friend of mine who also uh it turned out to be a United Church of Christ minister, but he he was going for his pre-induction physical in California. And the guy in front of him was a, a heavy person, and uh, he was wearing big cowboy boots. He stands up on the scale, and he's overweight. The guy doing the weighing, probably this, a sergeant, 
said, uh, uh, sir, what, how stupid do you think I am? Take the boots off and get back on the scale. So he got got down, he took the boots off, put them up under his arm and got back on the scale. And the sergeant said, see, you didn't have to try to fool me. You're overweight anyway. <laughs> That's great. And isn't that, that it's such a hard, I mean, it's, it's great and it's horrifying. We, we only have four minutes left. Okay, well. Let me, let me. Go ahead. We're talking with the Reverend Barry W. Lynn. He's the author of Paid to Piss People Off. It's a trilogy published by Blue Cedar Press. Go buy this book. It has the Feldman Guarantee. I disagree with you about the draft, but that's for another time. And we've, sure. we've, we've already been we've already been through that. Sure. Uh, but I disagree with you. I think there should be a draft and not just because I hate my kids. Um, no. Hey, what do you think? I'm glad you said that. Because what do you think? There's a variation on military conscription called national service, which I also hate. And I used to debate people. Gene McCarthy anti-war get clean with gene he decided he was in favor of that and i remember one uh, debate we had at the yale political union once which i think i won by 95 percent vote but as he pointed out it, it's yale and these are college students but when jack kennedy said ask not what your country can do for you ask what you can do for your country i have to say that strikes me more and more as bullshit because this if you go in Bo to boston and drive through boston which is a half hour from where i live if you go into southeast washington if you go into parts of of roxbury in in boston if you go in new york you drive from the center of los angeles to the la airport and you tell me that the people on the street there, literally lying on the street, or their children, who are sometimes with them, owe their government one moment of their time, or one penny. Well, he wasn't. They don't have. He was. He, he. I think he was talking about the Peace Corps and food for peace and war. No. He, he was. Mil he he was a it hawk, was, but it, yeah, but no. As soon as the government tells you what's good for the country, I get suspicious. In okay. other words, when they say, oh, yeah, well, you, you don't have to go in the military. You can go. You can do in the, you can be in the Peace Corps. You can. Uh-uh. What about mandatory schooling? Oh, I'm in favor of mandatory What about vaccines? Schooling. I'm in favor of mandatory. I'm not an anarchist. What about vaccines? I think, I think vaccines can be required i don't join my uh, what about paying taxes of course so don't you think we have a civic responsibility to give up two years of our lives since our kids and grandkids are going to be living to be 125 shouldn't they devote two <laughs> years of their lives to their country absolutely not they can do that but I'd like them to make sure that they're doing it voluntarily, that they feel that they have an obligation to work to do good because this country has been good to them. I, I disagree with you. Thousands of people to the in core, this country, David, they haven't been they haven't gotten one shred of goodness from this government. Well, I, there's no question that there's an underclass that always ends up being on the front lines. So I'm not going to argue with you on that. But when you describe, I met the great George McGovern, who I believe George. was also a method. Was he was a Methodist minister, correct? No, I don't think so. George was not. I don't. Oh, he's the son of a Methodist minister. I think he was the son of a minister. Uh, I met him a couple of times. He's my hero, and he said that he was a get. Now I apologize because he's since passed, and I don't want to put words in his mouth. Right. But I believe. I believe he said that looking back, the biggest mistake he made, and I apologize if I'm getting this wrong, was uh, pushing to end the draft. He said in a speech that I attended that by making everybody serve in the military, it forces all citizens to have a healthy distrust and mistrust of our military. The, th the story you tell about the boots. Yep. 
if everybody saw how stupid people in the military, the military leadership is, they would say, I, I, I don't believe what you're yeah. telling me. Well, that's that's here's my brief rebuttal to that. If it took that long for people to understand if I, I don't think that I don't know if George McGovern said that I've I mean, I used to talk to him occasionally about and the amnesty movement. But that's a hell of a price to pay. Hundreds of thousands of Vietnamese dead, 55,000 American women and men dead, another 50,000 who commit suicide when they come back from Vietnam. That's a hell of a price to pay so that somebody will wake up and go, you know, this government, they really are dope. No, that, you're missing, you're, you're, with all due respect, and when I say with all due respect. Well, you don't mean much. That's I okay. don't mean, but so just so you know. But so, I am okay. saying, I'm going through the motions of saying with all due respect. We're going to have fewer wars, if any, when people, middle class, upper middle class, white people have to send their kids off to fight losing wars, which... We never seem to win. So I think I think we inoculate America from from fighting all these wars by making everyone have to fight it. Yeah, I don't think this global war on terror would have lasted 20 years if more than one percent of our population was scarred by it. Yeah, well. I think we're just going to have to disagree. Okay. I'm going to do. I, I think the best answer is for you to come back next week. Okay, I'll come. You know what I want to do next week? Yes. I want to tell you how we could end up making a really solid determination about how many people we have in our military, because you have to know how many people do we have under arms now. How many could you get? How many people are ready to serve? They're just not serving yet. And then, by the way, what are they going to be fighting for? That's a discussion you never, ever see on CNN, MSNBC, or Lord help us, the Fox News Channel. Eric Prince, Eric Prince and Blackwater, whatever he's calling it these days, has become more influential, more powerful. They have privatized our military because there's no draft. They've, they've, there are contractors now going off and fighting our wars for us with no oversight, no inspector general. We have our own Wagner group like Putin, and we don't even know where we're sending them and who's sending them. And that, I think, is the byproduct of getting rid of the draft. You th Eric Prince would not want to bring back the draft. It would be bad for business. I'll give you the last word. Yeah, it's a... Um, I, I enjoy the comments from uh, that I'm noticing because for some reason now my uh, chat bot shows up at the bottom so it, i can actually look at you and read at the same time um, can you chew vietnam gum was, can you chew somebody gum? said somebody somebody says vietnam was a war crime i think it was a war crime and nobody's nobody's being prosecuted for it and as far as what the wealthy somebody was talking about the rich what the rich do is they get their kids out they go and see counselors they go and see psych analysts they go to see physicians they find all kinds of obscure illnesses and diseases that they have or they otherwise game the system we will never start to make america an equal country where we respect every person in every branch of the economic ladder by deciding to draft people in the hopes that maybe some rich kids will get drafted and they, they'll learn something. It's too, it's too much of a price to pay, it in is. my judgment. I want to just end on praising Rush Limbaugh. He got out of yeah. the draft in the most yeah. honorable way. Trump had the, the BS, the bone spurs.
Yep. Dick Cheney said I had other priorities. Yep. Rush Limbaugh, I had an anal cyst. Um, and, and, and he stuck with that. That was his story. Yeah. I couldn't serve in the military because I had an anal cyst. He's a hero in my <laughs> I'd rather go to Vietnam. I think it uh, takes more courage to say I couldn't go to Vietnam because I had an anal cyst. Yeah. God bless you, Rush, down in hell. Yeah. Down in hell. Rush Limbaugh. The Reverend Barry okay, W. Lynn is the author of Paid to Piss People Off. It is a trilogy. It's published by Blue Cedar Press. Go buy the book wherever fine books are sold or stolen. Go to Barnes and Noble. Go to BarryWLynn.com to buy it. Go to BlueCedarPress.com. You can even go to Amazon. In fact, do all your shopping on Amazon. (laughs) Thank you, Reverend. So well done. Thank you. You're listening to the David Feldman Show, you happy, self actualized hump. 